This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. You may be seated. For those of you who knew, as Damien just mentioned, my name is Ruth Sin. I'm one of the elders on staff, and it's a pleasure to be able to preach for you this morning. I want to thank you for those of you who do know that I was in India. I want to thank you for your prayers and support. The trip could not have gone uh, better. Uh, the three things we asked you to pray for is the solidification of the networks we're starting in Bangalore and Mumbai and Delhi, and that happened. We have nine church planners who are banding together in these networks, and it's phenomenal to see what God's doing there. The second thing we asked you to pray for is our coaching time, and it was amazing. We've come up with a little roadmap for these guys to succeed in the cities that they're in, and it's happening. So it's blowing me away to watch these men uh, lead people to Christ and build groups and build worship services. And when we asked you to pray for our families, and they were happy and healthy apart from us. And so it was a grand success. Now, uh, I came back uh, Monday evening. And so I was charged to preach a 25-minute sermon and keep it short and sweet. We'll see what happens. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how linear it's going to be or how fantastic it's going to be, but we're going to have some fun together. Um, as as uh, Damien just mentioned, we're going through 1 Thessalonians. We're only two weeks in. Uh, personally, this is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And the passage we're looking at has been by far one of the most formative passages in the Bible for me as a minister of the gospel. You see, the story of the church in Thessalonica, it's riveting. It's fascinating. Thessalonica is the strategic city, the global city, the capital city of Macedonia. Think modern-day Greece. Paul was there for only three weeks before being chased out of town. But by far, this was, as we learned from last week, the most fruitful and impactful three weeks of ministry he ever had. This could be the greatest revival recorded in church history. It's by far one of the most amazing outpouring of the Spirit. This is by far the healthiest and most productive church the Apostle Paul ever planted. 
It's clearly one of his favorite churches and by far his favorite model to point other Christians and churches to. Now, needless to say, three weeks is not a lot of time to establish a church, is it? I mean, we've been here for seven years and we've been working hard and there's a church here and we're excited about it. But three weeks, that is not much time. You see, there was jealous Jews and power-hungry Greeks, and they were jealous and worried about the impact the church was having, and so they enacted a very severe persecution campaign. They went after this church, and they chased Paul out of town. And then they followed Paul to the next town he went to, which was Berea, so Paul eventually made his way to Athens where he could breathe a little bit. And because he's so worried about this dear church that he was only with for three weeks, they're all brand new converts, he sends Timothy back to figure out what happened to him. And so eventually, Timothy finds his way back there, gets a report, and finds Paul in Corinth. So Paul, he's a jet setter, he's a world traveler, he finds them, and there's an encouraging report. Like any church, they had their issues, areas to grow, but this church was doing well. Now, in the persecution this little church experienced, I should say this large church was experiencing, there was many that wished to do this church harm, and the easiest way to do that was to discredit Paul to create a counter-narrative about his motives and his actions among them. And so Paul, in this passage, reminds them, he asks them to recall their own personal experiences of him, and in doing so, we have this amazing window into his mode of operation. In this passage, we see how Paul ministers the gospel. We see how Paul loves individuals. We see a blueprint for gospel impact. We see a blueprint for gospel leadership or spiritual influence. Now, this is a gift for us because you don't have to be an elder or a community group leader in New City to have spiritual influence. Actually, in in the groups that many of you are a part of, some of you are just a few steps ahead of someone else and you find yourself having massive spiritual influence in the people in your group. As you get to know people in the life of this body and church, you find that there's other believers who start rubbing up next to you because they want to be influenced by you. And so it's very easy to have spiritual leadership and influence in a healthy family and body. But also some of you are married and you know about spiritual influence. Some of you have children and you know about a little bit about the need of having spiritual influence. And so what's exciting about this passage is really quickly this morning, we're going to see that spiritual leadership is emotional it's intentional, intentional, and it's an inevitable. Emotional, emo, ah, emotional, intentional, inevitable. See, India. All right, first point. <laughs> Spiritual leadership is emotional. Now, uh, as most of you know, I became a Christian like my junior, senior year in high school. And so when I ran into college and, uh, as a brand new believer, I had so much working against me. You see, I grew up in a very prestigious Hindu home. It was a very self-righteous home, and I had to be great. There was no room for imperfection. There was no room for sins. There was no room for weakness. I had to create and become wonderful on every front in my life, which meant I had to become a liar, a pretender, a deceiver. I had to wear lots of masks. I had to learn pretty quickly, and it was modeled for me how to blame shift and rationalize and justify and make excuses So I could present the most beautiful face to the watching world and have status and dignity and worth and value. Now, quickly as a freshman in college, I realized I need Christian fellowship. So I got involved in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And guess what? 
they too knew a lot about blame shifting and rationalizing and justifying and pretending and lying and deceiving. And they, like me, felt this need to present this amazing view to the world of who they were in Christ. And I quickly realized as a sophomore by then, I had no idea how to follow Jesus Christ. I had no clue what it meant to be a godly man, and I had no one to help me down that road of godliness, but also enjoying God and his grace. That's when God brought into my life a guy named Jonathan Inman. Now, Jonathan Inman was a mess. He was making a mess of his ministry, and he found the church I was at as a place to become an intern and kind of get his life back in order. So he started running the middle school ministry at that church, and I was one of his main volunteers. And Jonathan started spending time with me. He just opened up his life to me. I remember going to his house for a lot of different meals. I remember throwing the disc with him. For those of you who are uninitiated, that's a Frisbee. And we had a lot of great times in the quads of Carolina throwing the disc. And we drank lots of sweet tea because this is what you do in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. You just drink lots of sweet tea. Now, he caught me in so many of my lies and pretense. He saw my rationalizing, my justifying, my need to present my best face forward. But he never brought down the hammer. Actually, he did the opposite. He started sharing his own struggles. He began to reveal to me his humanity. He never covered himself up. The more I shared about how great things were going, the more he shared about how things weren't going well for him and what he was learning about the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace in his life. As he invited me deeper and deeper into his struggles and how God was meeting him in the struggles, I began to get a window into his soul. And without realizing it, I began to change. I began to see a path forward and how to grow in godliness and in grace. You see, Jonathan Inman in my life was an example of emotional leadership that we see portrayed here in verses seven and eight. Let me read them again. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you became so very dear to us. Gentle. That's not the word we typically associate with the Apostle Paul, right? This guy was rough and tough. He was called by God to take the gospel to the whole watching world, to the Gentiles. But this was the word that he could say, you can recall by his conduct to the Thessalonians. He was so gentle that the only analogy that he could come up with that summarized, that embodied his affection was of a young mother, nursing, providing for, enjoying, taking care of her little baby. He was so affectionately desirous for them, meaning he longed for them, that he hated being separated from them. Paul shared not only the gospel, but his very own life with this church. Literally, they shared their own souls, is what's in the Greek, which included their inner life. And in doing so, the church became so dear to them that you could really translate this word as beloved or super close or intimate. You see, spiritual leadership, spiritual influence is not just being relational, it's, it's emotional. It's not just rubbing up against someone, it's sharing what's deep within you. You see this emotional rhythm often in the scriptures, and we talk about this a lot here at New City, that looking leads to compassion, which leads to action. Meaning if we're going to have spiritual influence or leadership in anyone's life, it starts with compassion. But where does that compassion and that emotion-rich heart come from but stepping back and looking at someone, 
and getting a heart full of them and looking and looking until it leads to compassion until it leads to action. Because Paul opened up his life to the church in Thessalonica, he opened up his heart to them. Spiritual leadership is opening up your life so that you can open up your heart. Now, this isn't rocket science. Think about it. How else is someone else going to learn how to be honest with themselves unless they see you being honest with yourself? How else is someone else going to understand the contours of their heart and their sins deep within unless they see you comfortable with your heart and knowing how to navigate the contours of your heart, not only to see sin, but Jesus ministering to you in the midst of that sin? How else is someone going to learn how to rehearse the gospel and enjoy and feast on God's rich graces in the midst of struggles of sin unless they see in front of them you struggling over your sins, but then laying hold of the truths of the gospel and enjoying Jesus? How else is someone going to be comfortable in their own skin and their callings and nuances and stories unless there's someone like you in their life who's comfortable in their own skin? enjoying their story and what God's doing in them. Now, for most of us, this is not new information. So what keeps us from opening up our hearts? What keeps us from opening up our lives? What keeps us from spiritual influence or leadership in someone else? I often found for my own self, it's control. You know, if I want to control relationships and interaction and protect myself, then I can only give so much. Because you've actually not just opened up your life, but give your heart to someone, you lose control. It gets messy. You actually hang out, right? You actually enjoy each other and spend time together. You lose those artificial boundaries that you put on a relationship. And so if we love control, we will not have emotional leadership in someone else's life. Comfort. A lot of us love to self-soothe. We've created structures in our life. And so we love comfort. And that's where we go to find hope and life and joy. And let me tell you, when you open up your life to someone... Not only do you take away control, but you take away some of your comfort structures as well. But I often find in my life, and I see in many of you, is the fear of rejection. It's scary to open up your life, isn't it? What if they don't like you? What if they think you're an idiot? You probably are one, and that's okay. But the, the reality is, we're scared what others might think of us because we get so much of our identity in it. And ultimately, it's pride. Our pride gets in the way. We want people to think Oh, we have certain images we created of ourselves, and at least we think we have. And we want people to worship and appreciate those images that we've created of ourselves. And so our pride is a huge prohibitor for us enjoying spiritual influence in others. But look at what we miss out on when we're not emotional in our spiritual leadership. We miss out on having open hearts and open lives. We miss out on sharing our lives with others, and we miss out on having dear relationships. But look at what the people around us miss out on. They miss out on transformation. They miss out on the gospel utterly transforming them inside out. So from this text, we see that spiritual leadership is emotional. But not only is it emotional, spiritual leadership is intentional. Now, some of you know uh, that I'm a huge college football fan. The problem with my story is I'm a fan of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So when that comes to basketball, it is a great thing. When it comes to football, it is not such a good thing. For example, yesterday my son and I yelled and screamed and cried as Eastern Carolina University, that's the American conference, demolished a 70 to 41. Let me tell you, it is hard being a North Carolina fan. 
I don't know if many of you SEC people can relate to the misery that I go through year in and year out. So secretly over the last couple of years, so it won't be secret anymore, I've slowly become an Oregon Duck fan. I love watching Oregon football. And if you've been paying attention to polls, they're number two right now. They may never win a national championship, but they are so much fun to watch. And honestly, as a football geek, I just marvel at their intentionality. It is a machine that is running that program. They run a spread offense. For those of you who don't know much football, it's okay. They've got a lot of really good athletes, and they spread them across the field. And all they're trying to do is get four yards every game. And they're trying to snap the ball every 10 seconds. In football, that is ridiculously difficult. Now, what I love about Oregon is they figured out how to do that. And recently, I read this long article on their intentionality, and it blew me away. See, they realize if they're going to run a play every 10 seconds and wear down the opposing defense, if they're going to be really fast, then they got to train all their players to be really fast. Because once a play is over, they got to line up to line of scrimmage and be ready to get the call from the sideline and snap the ball in 10 seconds, which means they have to have speed. And since they broke it down, being speed, being the common denominator, the most important thing for their offensive machine, when you show up your first week at camp, As an Oregon football player, you go to speed school. Before you can join the rest of the team and practice and actually earn a spot to play, you have to graduate from speed school. It doesn't matter if you're a wide receiver, a running back, or offensive lineman. All of you have to be fast. So they understand that the most basic component to them being successful is speed. So conceptually, they want to run the spread offense, but tactically, they all have to be fast. When I look and marvel at the intentionality of Oregon's football team, it gives me a window into the intentionality that Paul exhibits and models in this passage. Look at verses 11 and 12. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Again, Paul is saying, you don't have to go conceptual on this. Think about, remember who I was and how I conducted myself among you. He was not only gentle, but he was uberly proactive. He switches from the mother analogy to the father analogy. You know, mothers still do these activities, but he's trying to make a point here. First, he exhorted. Second, he encouraged. Third, he charged. Uh, The exhortation in this text is always related to spiritual instruction. He's urging them. The word for encouraged here in the Greek is far more directive. The word charged here is insisting, it's requiring. This is really intense language Paul's using here. And he exhorted and encouraged and he charged them in their walk, meaning their fundamental relationship with Jesus. Their, Their fundamental life with Jesus as they move forward with him in grace and in his kingdom, to be worthy of God. Now, this is a similar charge. And to the, to the church in Ephesus, he wrote, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you are called. To a church in Philippians, he said this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. To the church in Colossians, he wrote this, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. It really matters to Paul 
that we walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And then Paul unpacks this just a little bit more here. He says, who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. (laughs) Jesus has done wonderful things for us in his kingdom. And Paul is saying, he's called you out of darkness. Now live like one who's been called into his light. Think about the kingdom that God has invaded your life and from the inside out is transforming you. Think about the glory that God is going to give to you one day. The one day he's going to make the world the way it ought to be. And his glory is going to shine from every land. And in that glorious land, he's going to share his glory with you. And you'll be perfect in all that glory. And now Paul is encouraging this church, challenging this church, urging this church to live a walk that's worthy of that kingdom, of that glory, of that grace. Now, Paul is trying to take the church to Thessalonica somewhere. His spiritual leadership is intentional. And first, it's intentional on a conceptual level. He's concerned for their greatness. He wants them to enjoy the kingdom of God. He wants the kingdom of God to be exhibited more and more in their life. He wants there to be greatness in their life. He wants the glory that they will share with Jesus to begin to break through and shine forth in their lives right now. He wants them to enjoy the radical grace of God. And so he has a heart full of them. And he has a heart full where the Spirit's taking them. But it's not just on a conceptual level for Paul. It's on a tactical level. Uh, With the Spirit's leading, he's constantly helping the church take its next best step. Its next step towards maturity. Its next step towards fullness in Christ. What about you? Is your spiritual influence or spiritual leadership intentional? Is it intentional on a conceptual level? Think about this. Whether it's somewhere in your group, your spouse, your child, a good friend, do you have a heart full of where the Spirit's taking them? Do you daydream about glory in their life? Do you daydream about the beautiful work the Lord Jesus Christ is doing in them right now? The Bible says right now Jesus is discipling that person you care about. The Bible tells us that right now Jesus is transforming them inside out. The Bible tells us that right now Jesus, uh, that this person is the apple of their heavenly father's eye. And that the father, son, and the Holy Spirit work in concert together to make this person full of Jesus. And the apostle Paul, in essence, in this passage is modeling for us, go get a heart full of them. Can you see the glory that God is pushing into their lives? But not only is it conceptual, is your spiritual intentionality in their life tactical? What's their next best step? Are you aware of what the Holy Spirit's doing? Do you have a sense of what he's doing so much so that you're asking the Holy Spirit for help in leadership in that person's life? Do you know what that next step is? And are you running the offense Jesus is running in that person's life? Are you encouraging them or urging them and where it matters. Now, what keeps us from doing this? There's places in our lives where we're really, really intentional. We're actually very intentional beings in this room. Relative to the rest of the world, we're crazy intentional. Think about it. At work, think of all the projects you run. Think about how uberly intentional you are about them. Think about your exercise regimens. Some of you are very, very intentional. It's breathtaking. I could use some of that intentionality. 
Some of you, through image management, you work so hard to project a certain image. The way you dress, the way you do your hair, the way you carry yourself, you're uberly intentional. Think about how you look at your food, your investments, your kids' extracurriculars, the clubs and organizations you're part of. There's, there's very little in your life that's not intentional. So what keeps us from being intentional when it comes to spiritual influence in the life of others? Two quick things. Humility and dependence. Humility and dependence. Um, I've been doing this pastor thing, eldering thing for a while now, over a decade. And what I've learned is that by any time I've ever succeeded in spiritual influence, it's not started with competency, it's always started with humility. At the end of the day, I, like you, we get to wake up every morning going, God, I have no idea what to do next. Jesus, you put these people in my life. I got two wonderful kids, a great wife, a bunch of leaders I'm trying to love on. And the freedom we all have when we're thinking about spiritual influence is not, oh man, I gotta really nail this. I gotta get this down. It's Holy Spirit, what do I do next? I have no idea. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus loves it when we rub up next to him and going, you've given me this person and I have no idea what to do next because he can't help but fill our hearts and fill our imaginations with what the next step is. And then dependence. You know, I I really want to be competent and then my competencies be able to succeed in ministering to people. But I've learned the hard way in ministry and in spiritual influence, it doesn't work that way. It's when you're in the midst of that relationship and that conversation, you find yourself asking God in your head, I don't know what to do next. I need you, Jesus, right now, right here. See, it's not skill that keeps us from having spiritual influence in someone's life. It's pride. (laughs) We want to figure it out, so then we'll do it. When the reality is the only way we learn how to do it is by realizing we'll never figure it out. And we got to lean in on Jesus, and he's going to show us how to do it. You know, Paul, he uses child and not baby here. Do you remember the fantastic sermons Ted preached on parenting? It reminds me of it. We need to delight in our children. And as we delight in them, we need to disciple them. And as we disciple them, we need to discipline them in that order. On the foundation of delight is only then can we disciple. You know, relationships work that same way as well. <laughs> well, if you're going to have spiritual influence on them, it starts with delight, does it not? As you emotionally minister to them and share your life. And as they feel that love, it's only there that you can be intentional and actually disciple or lead or influence And if all we do is emotional leadership, we're never going to take anyone anywhere. Sure, we're going to have a great time, and we're going to really enjoy each other, but we're going to be stuck. But if all we do is intentional leadership, we're going to hurt each other. It's only when we're emotional in our spiritual influence and intentional together, one built on the other, that beautiful things happen. Again, in this passage, we're seeing that spiritual leadership or spiritual influence is emotional. We also see that's intentional. Finally, we see that spiritual leadership is inevitable. Look at verses three and four. There's so much good hope here. Verse three, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But verse four, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. You see, spiritual leadership is sourced it springs up from something. 
Uh, It can come from negative places. Paul is quick to say in this passage, my spiritual influence in your life did not spring up from ambition or pride or greed or popularity. And for all of us, we can go, ooh, sometimes that is true for me. But look at where Paul's spiritual leadership is sourced. It's sourced that he's been approved by God. Now, this is an interesting word because it usually deals with metals and coins that they've been examined and tested and accepted as authentic. Now, this is what the gospel does for all of us, but this is what it did for Paul. He was a murderer. He was a religious zealot. He was an evil, angry man that would kill people and torture people because they loved Jesus. And Jesus came in his life and transformed them and, and said, now I want you to take the gospel that you persecuted and I want you to go take it to the nations. Paul was undone by the gospel. He deserves death, but what he gets is the righteousness of Jesus. He deserves condemnation, but all he gets is favor. In the gospel, all our sins are taken away and what we have is the very approval of Jesus before the heavenly father. This is ours in the gospel. And like Paul, when we taste how we are approved by God, it liberates us, it sources us, it springs us up into action, into spiritual influence, into spiritual leadership for others. You see, when we begin to taste and see that the Lord is good, that he is for us, not against us, that he is in us, renewing us, making us more like a son, where we realize that every and each day the Holy Spirit lives to help us to hear the Father It helps us to cry out to the Father saying, Abba, Father. He lives to help us to see the glories of the gospel that we have in Jesus and find our home in that. It liberates us to have influence. See, it's only then we're freed not to please man, but to please God. See, Paul could care less what others thought because he was home in the gospel with his Father in heaven. He could care less whether various entities liked him or not because he loved them enough, insourced by the gospel, to give them what they needed, that they may flourish in the gospel. Now, here's what's so exciting about this passage. This is the work of God. This is what the Spirit is doing in you. This is the rhythm of the scriptures. Whether you like it or not, Jesus is filling you up so you can give that gospel away. He saved you so you can multiply your life in others. He has influenced you so that you can influence others. He has come and invaded into your life so he can send you to others. This is the rhythm of the gospel. This is what Jesus does. This is what he's doing right now inside of you. If right now you feel bottled up, you want to influence others, you don't know what to do, lean into the gospel because it's going to take you somewhere. Right now, if you're resisting having spiritual influence in your life, that's why your spirituality is not going well right now. Because you're bottling up the Holy Spirit and the powerful work of the gospel in your life. Because it's a power that's meant to be released. The kingdom of God is about power and joy and the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 14. It's about God exploding inside of you and taking you out. This is the work of the gospel. You don't have to manufacture it. You don't have to fake it. All you have to do is lean into Jesus and he will make you one who influences others. You've been redeemed and empowered for this very work. And that's good news. So like me, you get to wake up tomorrow morning and you get to say, God, I'm an idiot. And I don't know how to lead people. And I don't know how to love people. And you've given me some beautiful, sweet, precious people in my life. Would you help me to taste and see that you're good? 
so I can help them to see that you're beautiful and wonderful and worth having. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Thinking through what we're called to do and giving influence and leadership to others is terrifying. Because at the core, we recognize we're inept and incomplete and unable to do this on our own. And we want to cover that up. We want to fix it. We want to become competent so we can clean ourselves up before you. But what we recognize what we need is you. We need you saving us, changing us. We need your help. And we want to become, again, children who lean in on you. Father, in the remainder of the service, would you help us to climb into your lap? Would you help us to see that you love us and adore us, that we're approved by you? Would you help us see once again how you're feeding us in Jesus and this Lord's Supper? And would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to live in your grace? And as we do so, give it away. We pray all this in your blessed name, Lord Jesus. Amen.